So welcome back to the Neurology Exam Prep Podcast. My name is Aaron Bauer, one of the neurology residents here at the Yale New Haven Hospital. I'm joined today by Dr. Muller, and we're going to be talking a little bit about cortical organization and some of the syndromes that we like to think about when we think of our, our cortex anatomy. Good afternoon, Dr. Muller. Oh, good afternoon, Aaron, and thanks so much for having me. I think this is a great topic to review again. We did review this topic in an earlier, very early version of our podcast early in the feed, but I think it's good to refresh this. Uh, the anatomy hasn't changed, but there, we may have a lot of new listeners, and it's a nice thing to review. And I always have to start with a disclaimer. Neither of us is a neuroanatomist. Neither of us is a neuroscientist, but we're uh, involved in clinical neurology. We have to know cortical organization and some of the cellular basis. This is important for uh, almost every aspect of neurology that involves the brain. So maybe not the neuromuscular disorders, but even those. And we think that this would be a useful review for, for listeners at any level. Agreed on all fronts. And just to kind of outline what we're going to be discussing today, we'll start by just a simple review of kind of the cellular organization of the cortex and the varying layers. We won't spend a ton of time there. Um, just as that's a little bit less clinically relevant for our listeners. And then we'll go on a grand tour of the cortex, starting with the frontal lobe, moving on to the parietal lobe, and then the temporal lobe and ending with the occipital lobe in the back. And we may take a few offshoots here and there to discuss some more distributed but clinically relevant pathophysiology as we go. So if you're ready, Dr. Muller, how about we start with the cellular organization? Sure. So I think every new learner in neuroscience or neurology or in medical school has to learn that there are six layers to the cortex. And when we talk about cortex, really, we mean neocortex. Uh, That is the predominant gray matter in most cortical tissue in the brain. And those six layers all have different types of cells and different functions. And it's not so important, I think, to have memorized all of those for a clinician but just to understand those different layers and their different functions in order to understand how the cortex integrates with the rest of the brain and with the rest of the body. My general approach is actually to start with layer five. I think that's the easiest one to sort of remember. That's the internal pyramidal layer. That includes large pyramidal neurons that are the ones that are projecting out to the basal ganglia and to the spinal cord and the rest of the body. So when we think about, for example, our upper motor neurons in the motor cortex, the pyramidal neurons, the layer five neurons are the, are the upper motor neurons. Those are the ones that are going to project down to the spinal cord synapse in the anterior horn of the spinal cord and with the lower motor. Neuron. And if you work on either side of layer five, you're really talking about the neurons that are responsible for thalamocortical communication. So deeper in layer six, you have projections to the thalamus and more superficial in layer four, you have neurons that receive projections from the thalamus. And the names of those layers, layer six is the multiform layer and layer four is the internal granular layer. The remaining three layers, layers one to three, are primarily responsible for connections within the brain itself, within the cortex, within different layers of the cortex. So layer three, the external pyramidal layer, contains pyramidal neurons, that is neurons that project out, 
but typically that connect to other parts of the brain, specifically association cortices, especially in the other hemisphere. Layer two, the external granular layer, tends to have cells that project out, but to ipsilateral association cortices. So again, both of these layers are really about connections within the brain itself and within uh, among cortical structures. And then layer one, the molecular or plexiform layer, is really mainly consists of the dendrites of all of these pyramidal cells from different layers. And, uh, and this is where a lot of the connections come together. So there are six layers that each have generally different functions. Layer five is the main projector out to the rest of the body and to the basal ganglia. Layers four and six are important for thalamocortical projections. Layer two and three are important for cortical, cortical projections. And layer one is the dendrites. So thank you for that wonderful summary, Dr. Muller. I think starting with layer five, particularly, uh, maybe one that we're a little bit more familiar with clinically being those, those large cortical cells that are really the ones that are projecting down and out that we think of. And then moving out to layer six, four, and then two and three more for these association vertices. I think that's a really good way to keep it grouped together in, in the head. Just one, one little bit of sort of neuro trivia. We sometimes come up with this term, but we sometimes use the term BETS cells, B-E-T-Z. These are the giant pyramidal neurons within layer five in the primary motor cortex. Those are the biggest ones. So you might come across the term BET cells, and those are those giant upper motor neurons. So just an additional bit of trivia. I don't know that it's that important to know it, but if you come across it, that's what they're talking about. Oh, thank you for that reminder. You know, definitely in neurology, we know we are uh, not at a paucity for eponyms at this point. <laughs> Heading a little bit, you know, more big picture now and stepping away from the cellular organization of the cortex. How about we discuss a little bit about the frontal lobe? The frontal lobe is intimidating. I think it's intimidating because it's actually kind of several lobes. I'm sure I've said that before. And I sort of think of it as several lobes. Certainly anatomically, it is one lobe, you know, bounded posteriorly by the central sulcus, bounded inferiorly by the sylvian fissure, extending anteriorly to the frontal pole, and then bounded medially by the, the fox, you know, and if you go all the way around to the corpus callosum. And so it, it really is anatomically distinct, but functionally, it really has multiple different functions. And so if you go from posterior to anterior in the frontal lobe, which I think is the approach we're going to take, the functions more posteriorly are a little bit more straightforward, and the functions anteriorly are very complex and to some extent integrative. The most posterior aspect of the frontal lobe is the primary motor cortex, which is the is the gyrus that is just anterior to the central sulcus, also known as the precentral gyrus. And this is arranged in a somatotopic organization as a homunculus. So along the medial surface of the frontal lobe, uh, closest to the cingulate gyrus is the foot area, then over the medial surface. And then from when you move over the convexity of the frontal lobe from the medial to lateral surface of the frontal lobe, adjacent to the falx, you have the leg area. Then as you move more laterally along the lateral surface of the frontal lobe, 
You have the trunk area, then shoulder, then a very large hand area. And then there is the face and finally the mouth area. And the mouth area is generally located in the frontal operculum, which is the ridge of the frontal lobe that extends into the sylvian fissure. And so that's the homunculus. And if you Google pictures of the homunculus, obviously areas that we have more, that we use to engage in more complex motor movements have larger cortical representation. So there's a very large hand area. There's a very large face and mouth area. There is a very large area within the frontal operculum for our pharyngeal motor function. And all of this is important in the generation of speech. The anatomical relevance of the homunculus is perhaps most important in thinking about the fact that the primary motor cortex exists in two different vascular territories. So the vast majority of the primary motor cortex is in the MCA territory, basically from the trunk area laterally is in the MCA territory, the middle cerebral artery territory. But medially, that aspect of the frontal lobe that's responsible for motor function of the leg and foot is in the anterior cerebral artery territory, in the ACA territory. So in an MCA infarct, you might not see much weakness of the leg. You'll see some because you might pick off the white matter tracks that are descending downward from the leg area through the MCA territory, but you're going to see much more prominent hand and face weakness. And because hand and face have such large cortical representations, if you have a large MCA stroke, often it's most prominent that you see weakness of the hand and face. The other thing that's important from that perspective is that a large midline abnormality, like a mass lesion off the falks, will often give you bilateral leg weakness, right? Because if you had a falsine lesion, that's going to push on both sides and pick off the leg and foot areas on both sides, just adjacent to the falks along the homunculus. And it's why I always keep a large midline falsine lesion on my differential diagnosis for bilateral leg weakness. Usually we think that that's gonna be a spinal cord lesion or a catequina lesion or a polyneuropathy, but you can have subacute bilateral leg weakness from a perifalsine lesion. Yeah, and that's definitely a very good point to keep clinically. I think there is, thinking back to my PGY2 year, at the very beginning, I did see a patient who had came in with lower extremity weakness, had had multiple spinal imaging but never any central imaging and ended up having a very large midline meningioma. So definitely, definitely one to keep in the back of the differential. There are so many diagnoses, Aaron. We talk about this in our clinical teaching. If you don't think of it, you won't make the diagnosis or at least not until it's screamingly obvious. And so we, when we want to make early diagnoses, when interventions are most relevant and most likely to be effective, then we want to be able to think broadly about anatomy. So the anatomy really matters. Now that we've discussed at least the primary motor cortex, um, if we were to move a little bit anterior to some of those premotor areas, do you think we could talk about a few of the more clinically relevant premotor areas? Yeah. So we have the premotor cortex, which is just anterior to the precentral sulcus. So just anterior to the primary motor area. The premotor area is important for motor planning and for integration of motor function. It re receives afferent input from the parietal cortex and other parts of association cortices that are important for motor planning. And it sends efferent information to the primary motor cortex. The 
uh, premotor cortex, as I said, tends to be most important for motor planning and learning. The one region of the premotor cortex that's important is along the medial surface, uh, medial and superior surface of the premotor, just superior to the cingulate. And that is the SMA or supplemental motor area. And that is specifically important for learned motor, motor sequences. So these complex sequences that we have learned. And clinically, I guess there are a couple of things to keep in mind. Seizures that involve or extend to the supplementary motor area, for example, will often have bilateral motor manifestations because there are bilateral projections from the supplementary motor area, even though there is not a loss of consciousness or awareness. So SMA seizures are one of the exceptions to the rule that in general, seizures with bilateral motor manifestations are going to be associated with loss of consciousness or awareness. But SMA seizures tend to be brief. Classically, they tend to be asymmetric tonic seizures. So our classic fencers posturing that we see with SMA seizures, but they are uh, the type of seizure that tends to have bilateral motor manifestations, even though the patient remains aware. Thank you for that clinical pearl with the SMA seizures. I think that's definitely one that, especially early in training, it's good to learn those exceptions to the rules because those are also the ones that we will have to think about a little bit more closely. And it's definitely one that I, I learned probably a little later. I think another interesting point, maybe to step back to some basic neuroscience as well. One rather interesting neuron that lives in these premotor areas is actually um, a mirror neuron, which interestingly will become active when a patient is performing a particular action, but will also almost mirror when somebody else is performing that action as well. It will have a similar activated state maybe something that will come up occasionally here and there uh, when you're learning some of these cortical pathways, but it's definitely a very fascinating neuron, or at least that I remember from my, from my early neuroscience education. And then somewhat related to the premotor areas, perhaps we can talk a little bit about the frontal eye fields, which definitely comes up clinically as well. Yeah, I think the frontal eye fields are relatively simple from the perspective of our clinical correlates. Although certainly if you study them in more depth, they tend to be more complex. But from our perspective, I think when we're learning, we can think that the frontal eye fields in one hemisphere, which again are just anterior to the uh, premotor areas, that those frontal eye fields will result in conjugate eye movements to the opposite side uh, or in the opposite direction. So for example, neurons in the frontal eye fields in the left hemisphere will cause conjugate eye movements to the right side. And these are important specifically for saccadic eye movements. So the eye movements that we do intentionally to look at something. And this is important because loss of function of neurons within the frontal eye fields, such as in a large hemispheric stroke, usually involving the MCA territory, will result in a loss of the tonic input from the eye, frontal eye fields, and therefore, the gaze will deviate toward the infarcted hemisphere because of a relative increase in tonic input from the contralateral frontal eye fields. So in general, if you have loss of function from a stroke, you will have tonic gaze deviation toward the infarcted hemisphere and away from the paretic limbs. And this is what we sometimes call the right way or correct way eyes. 
if you have a seizure and you have overactivation of neurons in a frontal eye field, this will cause tonic gaze deviation in the opposite direction. So away from the involved area of cortex. And so in a seizure, you'll have tonic gaze deviation contralaterally. Still in a seizure, you might have a paretic or tonically stiff limb. And so the eyes will move toward that paretic or tonically stiff limb. And because strokes are more common than seizures in the acute setting, we sometimes say that is the wrong way eyes. We sometimes call that wrong way eyes because we expect that the most common cause of a paretic limb would be an acute stroke in the acute setting, and the gaze would be away from the paretic side. But if it was a seizure, then the gaze is going to be toward the paretic side, and we call that wrong way eyes. You can also see wrong way eyes in lesions that involve the brainstem and lesions involve, that involve the thalamus. So those are other ex exceptions. We won't get into those here, but we sometimes think about right way and wrong way eyes. And I will say for our listeners, this is a classic thing that residents can teach medical students, right? This is one of those things that in the afternoon, when you have a little extra time after rounds are over, residents will sit down and draw a diagram about gaze deviation and explain why gaze deviation is expected one way for stroke and another way for seizures. And I really think this is a great teaching point. And the way you learn it is by teaching it lots. Definitely have drawn out a, well, maybe poorly drawn out is a better way of describing it, this, this type of circuit multiple times. And it's definitely a crowd pleaser. <laughs> so I think that really sums up a lot of the motor aspects of the frontal lobe. And I think now, if, if is a good time, we can start talking about some of these more anterior aspects of the frontal lobe, which for me has always been a little bit more mystifying and less well-defined. So it'll definitely be good to discuss a bit of an approach that I know you've discussed here a lot. Yeah, I'm, I'm a simple person, as you know, and my approach to the prefrontal cortex is relatively simple. And so the prefrontal cortex, I'm really describing the anatomical areas of the frontal lobe anterior to the premotor areas and the frontal eye fields, not including Broca's area, which we'll get to, and going from there all the way to the frontal pole. And, and again, inferiorly all the way back to the non-motor areas uh, of the frontal lobe or including the non-motor areas of the frontal lobe. If you took a coronal slice of the frontal lobe, you'd really have kind of a triangle. So laterally, you, over the frontal convexity, you would have the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Medially, you have the mesial frontal cortex and the anterior cingulate, you know, the anterior aspects of the cingulate. And then inferiorly, you have the orbital frontal cortex. And these, three areas, they have overlapping functions, but they do have some differences in their functions. And so I was taught that the main function of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is executive functioning. And executive functioning, the mnemonic I learned for that was SOAP. So SOAP includes sequencing, organization, abstraction, and planning. I think those are good for executive functioning. And a great way to test a lot of that is, for example, to ask somebody to draw a clock. Uh, that requires some sequencing, some planning, organization. And then if you ask them something like put the hands at 10 past 11, then that requires abstraction because it doesn't really make sense on the surface, 10 past 11. That's an abstract concept. You can test abstraction with word similarities and, and other functions as well. The orbitofrontal cortex, I always remember 
by remembering Phineas Gage. And I think I've mentioned that in previous podcasts. Phineas Gage was the railway worker who, in the context of an explosion, had a railway spike that went up through his orbit and through the orbital frontal cortex. And uh, as a result of that, the story goes, there was a change in behavior, uh, loss of inhibitions, uh, mood changes, uh, changes in judgment. And that helps me remember that the orbital frontal cortex is important for emotional regulation, for social behavior, judgment, and inhibitions. And then finally, we have the mesial frontal cortex. It's ver vertically oriented. So the way I remember it is that's the get up and go. I've heard other people say that uh, the mesial frontal cortex starts with the letter M. So motivation uh, uh, could help whatever way you want to remember it. But basically, that's going to be for initiation, motivation, goal-oriented behaviors. And again, in loss of function syndromes, chronically with neurodegenerative syndromes, you get loss of these functions. But you can also have gain of function, right? In seizures, for example, when we have mesial frontal onset seizures, those are often hypermotor. They often involve a lot of very prominent, fast movements, uh, scrambling, crawling, screaming, things like that. Uh, orbital frontal seizures, because of the common connections between the limbic system and the orbital frontal system, often can be very difficult to distinguish from seizures that originate in the mesial temporal structures, for example. And dorsolateral premotor seizures can be very subtle. So those are some of the ways that you can remember, remember these things. Well, thank you for a wonderful summary. I think over the course of my my few years here, it's definitely been a lot easier to just kind of keep those boiled down in that approach. And then also having at least a few things that you can test on an exam even quickly. And I particularly am a really big fan of the clock draw, which can be done very quickly in clinic and give you a lot of information about some of the frontal functioning. Yeah, there are other tests that are simple. <clears throat> a trails test, for example, can test executive functioning and planning and things like that. As we talked about similarities word list generation to some extent, uh, all of these things can help too. So I think the last area that we may take a bit of a side um, will be Broca's area, just because the uh, communication of language and aphasias, although Broca's being one of the more, you know, clinically relevant and maybe well-known areas that are important for language function, we may discuss a little bit more broadly here about the aphasias and kind of the more distributed functions of language. Does that sound like a good plan, Dr. Muller? I think it's a great plan. And again, in general, one piece of advice I have for those listeners who are residents is the way you're going to get good at this is this is another classic to teach medical students in those afternoons when things are quiet on the ward. Uh, and sometimes they are. And my residents tell me it's usually busy, but I, I do read the teaching evaluation. So they somehow find time. And, you know, they're are three primary anatomical considerations in, in language. You have your Broca's area, which is in the inferior frontal lobe. You have your Wernicke's area in the posterior superior temporal lobe, the lateral temporal cortex, superior temporal gyrus, the posterior aspect of that. And then you have the connection between the two the arcuate fasciculus. And so <clears throat> those are the primary areas. And then we do also have association areas adjacent to Broca's area and adjacent to Wernicke's area that are helpful. And so dysfunction of any of those structures 
could produce a different pattern of language dysfunction. Broca's area is primarily responsible for motor production of language, either spoken or written or typed. Wernicke's area is primarily responsible for reception of language, for understanding of language or bringing it in, either heard or read. And so dysfunction in Broca's area, in the anterior area, is generally going to result in a difficulty in the production of language. And so most often people with a problem more anteriorly are going to be non-fluent. They're not going to have an easy time producing language. Somebody who has a problem more with reception of language will usually have trouble with comprehension, but may not have trouble with the production of speech, even if it doesn't make much sense. And so more posterior types of problems with language are going to tend to be fluent. So when I teach students to keep it simple, there are six types of aphasia and all that kind of stuff, but it can be hard to parse all of those. But I would say start with fluent versus non-fluent. So if it's fluent, then you're really narrowing that, that down to sort of the anterior parts of that language pathway. If it's fluent, you're really narrowing that down to the posterior receptive parts of that language pathway. Uh, the classic Broca's aphasia, when the lesion affects Broca's area, is somebody who is tends to be either mute or with a severe problem with fluency because you're picking off Broca's area, but they may have some intact language comprehension, usually not totally normal because these language functions are complex and integrated, but they tend to be able to understand. Uh, of course, they can't repeat. A Wernicke's aphasia, that is in the primary receptive area for language, uh, these patients tend to be fluent, but it tends not to make much sense. There'll be neologisms, which are words that don't make it mean anything, or words in the wrong order, or words that are not used in the uh, correct context, what we call paraphasic errors, uh, or words that are close, but not uh, exactly right. So those paraphasic errors, you know, substituting for a category, which we call a semantic paraphasia, or substituting with a word that sounds the same, what we call a phonemic paraphasia. And in general, with a Wernicke's aphasia, some things that are more automatic, like, hello, I'm doing okay, you know, these automatic phrases, it's okay, uh, tend to be intact. So you'll often hear patients be able to sort of say these automatic things, even if they can't understand. There is something called a conduction aphasia, which most of our listens, listeners have heard about. And that is where there is a problem with the fasciculus, but there's intact Wernicke's and Broca's area. Those patients tend to have intact production of language. They tend to be fluent. They do tend to make errors but they have difficulty with repetition. They obviously can't repeat. And then there are two that are a little trickier, and those are related to sort of associative areas in either Broca's or Wernicke's, the transcortical motor aphasia. So that tends to be lesions not in Broca's area, but sort of just maybe anterior or superior to that area. And those are patients who will have non-fluent aphasia. Again, it's anterior, so it's non-fluent. They may have difficulty with language production, but they can repeat because sort of the primary basic structures that Wernicke's to fasciculus to Broca's is still working. So higher level language function is not there. It's non-fluent, but they can repeat. Transcortical sensory aphasia 
usually involves areas just inferior or maybe even posterior to Wernicke's area. And these are patients who look a bit like Wernicke's, that is that they have fluent speech, but it might not make a lot of sense, uh, but they have intact repetition. And then comprehension is, is impaired as it would be in a Wernicke's aphasia. And then finally, if you have if you have enough damage to the whole speech pathway, you can have a global aphasia. These are people who are mute and cannot understand or comprehend. Like I said, I think our listeners should be able to draw a diagram of whether or not there's intact fluency, naming, repetition, comprehension, reading, writing, and then be able to narrow down based on any given pattern of all of those six elements of speech, of language, whether or not uh, what type of uh, aphasia the person likely has. But taking a step back more generally, usually we're doing okay if we can sort out whether it's fluent or non-fluent. And again, like I said before, fluent means that it's likely more posterior in that language pathway. Non-fluent means it's likely more anterior in that pathway. Uh, I think that's a very reasonable approach. And overall, I think really being able to narrow down the fluency is really the big first step for most early learners. And I will say the the fluent aphasias for me have always been difficult. I feel like if there's an aphasia that's missed, it's it's a fluent aphasia that may take a little bit of time, especially given the intact kind of learned phrases that can really falsely kind of keep everyone calm about the situation when in fact it, it is somebody with an acute stroke. Yeah. I mean, you know, and also think about the vascular anatomy, right? If you have a stroke involving the inferior division of the MCA, so that mainly is involving that temporal parietal occipital area, might not take out any major motor functions. So there may be no hemiparesis or it may be very subtle. And all you have is a fluent aphasia with impaired comprehension. Mm-hmm. And that happens in somebody who's elderly or who has other medical problems or has a urinary tract infection. It's totally understandable that somebody who has not looked at the language carefully, who has not looked at all six elements of language, might interpret that to be a delirium, you know, and, and we, we have certainly seen that type of presentation a fair bit, and it's an easy one to miss. Always good to encourage a high index of suspicion. Well, I think that concludes the kind of tour of the frontal lobe. So we were able to talk about these primary and pre-motor areas. We were able to discuss the more distributed effects of the prefrontal lobe with the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, orbital frontal cortex, and these more mesial uh, frontal cortices. And then also a nice discussion about the more distributed function of speech. So now that we've wrapped up the frontal lobe, let's take a step to the opposite side of the central sulcus and start a discussion regarding the parietal lobe. I think the beginning will be a little bit familiar sounding. In our recent thalamic podcast, I think we started by talking about the sensory relay uh, neurons within the thalamus, and those were mainly in the ventroposterolateral and ventroposteromedial nuclei, and those project to the postcentral gyrus, to the primary sensory cortex. And the primary sensory cortex is just posterior to the primary motor cortex, Sometimes we call that whole area the primary sensory motor cortex because there are integrated functions as always. But the primary sensory cortex is organized pretty well exactly the same way as the primary motor cortex. 
So that is leg and foot medially, then over the upper convexity trunk, then shoulder, then a large hand area, then face, and finally mouth and throat around the parietal operculum. So just sort of on the inferior edge as we move to the sylvian fissure. Right underneath the primary somatosensory cortex, we also have a secondary somatosensory cortex as well. Is that correct? Yeah, and this is sometimes called S2 or the second sensory area. It's uh, just adjacent to the parietal operculum. And what's particularly clinically relevant about this sort of S2 area is that it receives and integrates information from both sides of the body. So seizures involving the S2 area, we see these rarely, but we do, involving this sort of parietal opercular area can have bilateral sensory manifestations, bilateral paresthesias, often midline. And uh, it's just good to be aware of this second somatosensory cortex or second sensory area or S2, because it is something that occasionally would be the exception to the rule that bilateral sensory manifestations without loss of consciousness, you know, it'd be hard to explain that as a seizure, except, for example, if they involve the S2. So the more sensory analog to the SMA seizures, if you will. I think that's a great way to think about it. Now, moving forward with the parietal lobe, which obviously has a lot of distributed functions, I think we may discuss some of the anatomy moving forward more in the setting of impairment and, you know, expected symptoms that may occur in that setting. So with the first spot, we were going to discuss a little bit about the association cortex around and adjacent to some of these sensory areas. So these would be difficulties related to cortical sensory impairments, not necessarily an impairment with touch or numbness that we would think of more with a primary somatosensory cortex. So maybe something a little bit more in the associative cortices around the primary cortex. What could we expect in a patient with a lesion to these more associative cortices around the primary somatosensory cortex? Yeah, I think these are what we sometimes call our cortical sensory findings, right? So we sometimes use the term cortical sensory findings to discuss problems that we really could relate to functions of the association cortex of the sensory area. And so some classic cortical findings would be things like agraphesthesia. So, you know, the ability to understand or put together the sensory information when somebody traces the shape of a number in the palm of your hand. We have stereognosis, you know, somebody puts a coin in your hand and you can't tell what denomination or even what it is. You know, on the simpler level, things like loss of two-point discrimination, loss of depth perception, we, ca- we call that astereognosis. You could have uh, something that I don't know that I've ever seen, but aberagnosia, and I guess that's the loss of the ability to uh, discriminate uh, different weights of things that you're picking up or lifting. And of course, we look for extinction. So somebody that might have a loss, usually in the non-dominant hemisphere, of function of parietal association cortices will not pay attention to the other side. So they might have neglect or they might have difficulty with double simultaneous stimulation. And in the most severe forms, when you have hemineglect syndromes, you can have different types of uh, agnosias and apraxias. So, you know, constructional or dressing apraxia, or you could have a full hemi 
sensory neglect. And in the most severe versions, we have things like alien limb syndrome, which we can see, for example, in the uh, cortical basal syndrome. And uh, the other thing that can happen when you have parietal association dysfunction is what's called anosognosia, which is the inability to even be aware that you have a neurological deficit. So all of these things that have to do with sensory integration, with understanding your connection with time and space, especially in the contralateral side of your body, but in some cases in both sides of your body, especially with lesions in the non-dominant hemisphere, those are all related to dysfunction in the cortical sensory association areas. In the dominant hemisphere, uh, that is your language dominant hemisphere, you sometimes get something a little bit more complex with dysfunction in a sensory association area. And classically, this is in the angular gyrus, which is sort of at the junction of the temporal parietal and, and uh, temporal and parietal lobes uh, on the posterior edge of the sylvian fissure, although it can be a little bit more diffuse. And that's something called the Gerstmann syndrome. You know, I don't, again, you commented on eponymous terms, Aaron, and I don't know if it's as important to remember who it's named after, but it is useful to have these names as they carry a collection of information that tells you a little bit about the function of that area of the brain. And the Gerstmann syndrome includes a lot of sort of sensory and language integration types of functions. So there's finger agnosia, you know, the inability to recognize uh, or discriminate individual fingers. That, that's actually an important function to be able to tell the difference between your index and pinky finger allows you to use your hand appropriately. A calculia, right? This again is that connection between visual spatial function and language that allows us to do math. A graphia, you know, the inability to write. Again, you have that integration between sensory and language information and left-right confusion. Again, all of these tend to be about integration between sensory and language information, so are going to be part of that Gerstmann syndrome. If you move a little bit more posteriorly and you get into association cortices that are adjacent to our visual association cortices, then you can have disorders that have to do with integration of sensory and visual information, so visual, spatial, and visual information. And the classic example of that when you have often bilateral parietal or parietal occipital dysfunction with intact primary sensory and primary visual information, you can have the Balint syndrome. And the Balint syndrome has a, a triad of features that relate to sensory and visual integration. So you can have what's called optic ataxia. This is, this is tricky because I would have thought optic relates to the eye or the optic nerve, but really this is visually guided movements. So it's a type of ataxia in that there's a problem with movement, but particularly with visually guided movements. So somebody has difficulty reaching for a visual object. Oculomotor apraxia, I think makes mo more sense. And this has to do with eye movements. And this is difficulty with voluntary eye movements. And sometimes you have to check with uh, check saccades to see that, you know, somebody will have difficulty looking at a target. And then simultagnosia, that is the difficulty in being able to attend to two different areas in your visual field at the same time. So, uh, you know, a classic example is somebody who keeps bumping over things that aren't the thing that they're paying attention to. So tripping over things, even though they can see them, but they can't attend to that area. And then classically, we have these figures, right? We see these figures, you can Google them, of 
uh, a large block letter H that's actually made of little T letters. You know, there are little T's that are lined up to make a large H. And somebody with somatognosia can only see the T's. They can't see, you know, the forest for the trees. Or you show them, you know, your classic NIH stroke card with the, uh, the woman standing at the faucet and the children in the cookie jar in the other place. And they just can't attend. They can't put together all of these different images to tell you what's going on. So again, the names may be less important. It is useful and fun and you can oppress your attendings, but really thinking about is this sensory integration with language? Is it sensory integration with other visual spatial functioning? Is it sensory integration with vision? And those are going to give you the different deficits depending on where they are. Thank you for going over those. I definitely think seeing Gershman's or Blint are fascinating. I think the parietal syndromes particularly are some that may be the most clinically poignant, especially for new learners and people who aren't always on the services. So for me, being able to go back on a patient after rounds and going through these a little bit more, you know, in depth with other learners is always important. I think very worthwhile and can be very meaningful. And again, you might not pick these up if you don't test them, right? We're not testing oculomotor apraxia in every patient, but you know, you, I think with more experience and if you try these things, you just get clues, right? There's something funny about the eye movements. They don't seem to be able to look at your finger. And so then you start checking the other things and you're like, my gosh, this person has Balint uh, syndrome. You know, we had a patient uh, who had a, a press post-reversible leukoencephalopathy syndrome and kept saying they would just had a hard time looking for things, you know, uh, looking for objects and picking them up. And it was thought that maybe they were clumsy or uh, it wasn't clear what was going on, but they, they had a visual integration problem. They had a Balint syndrome. And when we specifically looked for different elements, they had all of them. So like a lot of things, you have to know of it. You have to be aware of it or you'll never diagnose it. So I think that really wraps up the parietal lobe. We were able to talk about primary somatosensory cortex, some of the analogous regions with the secondary somatosensory cortex and SMA. We were able to talk about these association cortices and very specific cortical sensory impairments, going through Gerstmann syndrome, finger agnosia, acalcula, agraphia, left-right confusion, Balint syndrome with optic ataxia, oculometer, apraxia, and simultagnosia. At this point, I think we can move a little bit forward, kind of wrapping around now to the temporal lobe. So the temporal lobe, I think I've said this before, it's kind of a couple lobes too, right? So you have the lateral temporal lobe, which has very different types of functions from the mesial temporal lobe. So the lateral temporal lobe includes the primary or auditory cortex, that is Heschel's gyrus, sort of on the banks of the sylvian fissure, sort of superiorly and a little posteriorly in the temporal lobe, just superior and medial to the superior temporal gyrus. You have Wernicke's area, which we've already talked about. And all of that is sort of involved in auditory function and auditory processing. And of course, language, you know, especially receptive aspects of language. The medial temporal lobe, the medial and inferior temporal lobes are really the parts that are involved in the limbic system, which we've talked about in different podcasts. And those are important for memory and learning. We've talked about that. And then of course, for some emotional functions. I'm not going to get into memory because I think we've talked about that on other podcasts in more detail, other than to say that the mesial temporal structures 
and the limbic system are really important for encoding of explicit declarative memory. And so somebody with primary dysfunction of the mesial temporal lobe will have an amnestic syndrome. So somebody who has transient global amnesia, which we think involves bilateral mesial temporal structures, will often have transient amnesia. Somebody with damage to the temporal lobe, such as with herpes simplex encephalitis, will have an amnestic syndrome often. They will have difficulty registering and understanding and, and remembering things they're told. And then people with more chronic dysfunction of mesial temporal structures will have the amnestic syndrome that we see with Alzheimer's dementia and related dementia syndromes. So I think that's probably the most important thing. A couple other syndromes that are useful to know about. The inferior optic radiations kind of go down and through and slightly anterior to the the temporal lobe. And so with temporal lobe resections, if they go far enough back, sometimes you get a little superior quadrantinopia. So we sometimes look for that after epilepsy surgery. So the Myers loop, those inferior optic radiations that extend a little bit anteriorly. Bilateral superior temporal lobe lesions could uh, produce a primary cortical hearing loss or what's called pure word deafness. And then with bilateral temporal lobe lesions, as well as the amnestic syndrome, you can have behavioral disturbances, right? You know, these problems that again, relate to those orbital frontal uh, things that we talked about before. Uh, The orbital frontal and mesial temporal structures are connected. So just to think about the temporal lobe, what I would do is think about it as kind of two different lobes. One is the lateral temporal lobe, which is mainly about hearing and processing of receptive language and the medial and inferior temporal lobes, which is more part of the limbic system. So some of that emotional regulation and memory. Fantastic. And I do think if anybody needs a refresher on memory, there are several podcasts moving back that they can always go and have a, have a refresher on which never hurts. So that leaves us just with one lobe left. So we've gone through the frontal lobe, the parietal lobe, and the temporal lobe, and naturally we'll finish it off with the occipital lobe. So the occipital lobe is uh, where our primary visual cortex is. So the primary cortex within the occipital lobe on the banks of the calcarine fissure, sort of medial and inf- uh, medially in the occipital lobe and posteriorly is where we have our primary visual cortex. That is organized uh, somatotopically as well, so that the central visual field is at the occipital pole and the more peripheral aspects of the visual field are are more anterior. And the farther anterior you go along the primary visual cortex, the more peripheral the visual representation. Because the occipital pole is in a watershed region that includes a blood supply from both the posterior cerebral artery and also uh, distal branches of the middle cerebral artery, it is sometimes seen that you have sparing of the central visual field with a posterior cerebral artery stroke, for example. So you could have a PCA stroke, but because the occipital pole may have some collateral uh, blood supply from the MCA, you might see an in, a relatively intact macular vision with a loss of more peripheral vision, what we call central sparing of the visual fields. Then just adjacent to those are our visual association areas. And these visual association areas kind of divide into two pathways or two streams. And I think we've talked about these before. The dorsal stream, that one extending dorsally up to the parietal lobe is what we call our wear pathway. 
And this is, again, we talked about going, moving backward. We talked about parietal occipital integration and how this is important in visual guidance uh, toward a, a, a visual guidance of movement. So perception of movements, looking at where things are, shifting gaze, depth perception, all those sorts of things. That's along our where pathway. The ventral pathway, which is the projections from visual association cortices into the temporal lobe, is our what pathway. And so this tells us information about how to make sense of what we're seeing and what these things represent. And that can include forms, colors, shapes. And so dysfunction in the what pathway, in that ventral pathway, can lead to things like achromatopsia, you know, the difficulty to perceive colors, or prosopagnosia, you know, classically involving the bilateral fusiform gyruses, uh, but, but really anywhere along that what pathway it's possible. And that is the inability to integrate different parts of a face to put that together as a person. So prosopagnosia is the inability to recognize or identify faces. And then you can have visual agnosias where you have a difficulty recognizing objects or you have a difficulty copying objects or drawing them or things like that because you can't make sense of them. And then the last syndrome I'll mention, I think it's a fascinating syndrome, again, an eponym, would be Anton syndrome. And Anton syndrome is dysfunction of the bilateral occipital lobes, including the primary visual cortex, but often including association cortices too, so that somebody cannot see, but they also have anosognosia. So they are not aware that they cannot see. And there is often an element of confabulation. So somebody will insist that they're able to see despite evidence to the contrary, just you know, even bumping into things or you show them an object and they, they confabulate. They just say that they're seeing something uh, that, and they're quite convinced. This is not faking. This is not voluntary. This is somebody with the inability to recognize their deficit because of a, a problem with association visual cortices. Yeah, the Anton syndrome is definitely a very striking neuro, neurologic deficit. It's one that I remember very vividly from even as a medical student, and I saw on my psychiatric rotation, interestingly enough, and I still remember it to this day. I think this wraps up our discussion on the cortical syndromes and cortical anatomy. We've discussed some of the basic cellular organization of the cortex, gone through our frontal lobe, our parietal lobe, temporal lobe, and occipital lobe, with a discussion on some of the major deficits and major functions along the way. Thank you, as always, Dr. Moeller, for doing the podcast and helping me go through some of these syndromes. Your help is always appreciated. Oh, and yours too, Aaron. And, you know, this is one of those things where, you know, I think these get better with practice. And I'm not an expert, but somebody who is involved in just relearning these things all the time and teaching them to others. And again, just the theme of this episode, for our listeners, get out there and start teaching these, make them your own. These are the types of things. They're really fascinating. And they're the types of things that might get a learner really interested in a career in neurology. So all of you neurology residents who are interested in uh, getting the next generation on board, start teaching these, start teaching these cortical syndromes. And when you do, you'll understand them better and you'll have more fun on the wards and you'll pick some things up that you might not have picked up otherwise. Couldn't agree more. Thank you as always, Dr. Muller.